I'm John Mattis, and this is Puck Pursuit. Hey folks, what's going on? Today's guest is Ken Reed, the Sportsnet broadcaster and six-time author. Ken is best known for co-anchoring the primetime edition of Sportsnet Central. He's been in that role for a number of years alongside Ivanka Osmak. His latest book, One to Remember, Stories from 39 Members of the NHL's One Goal Club, is out now. Ken and I chat about that book and a bunch of other things, including being a hockey romantic and avid hockey card collector, marketing hockey through its personalities, the bizarre body checking controversy in the Ontario Hockey League, the fantastic idea of an all-Canadian division in the NHL, and off the top, the 2020-21 NHL season and where it may or may not be headed. As Ken mentions at the end of the interview, this conversation evolves. It goes from, you know, some depressing topics to happier, nostalgic, cheerier topics and conversation. All in all, it was a ton of fun to record. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Here is Ken Reed on Puck Pursuit. So Ken, we're coming up on roughly eight months of a pandemic that has tossed the sporting world upside down. The NHL passed its first test, which of course was completing the 2019-20 season. The next test, completing the 2020-21 season, in some form or another, is ostensibly a more complex undertaking. I know you don't have a crystal ball. I'm looking at you right now via Zoom. I, there's no crystal ball present. But I am wondering, what's your hunch on how this all plays out with the NHL and their next full season? Yeah. I hate to put it off, but we're recording this on Tuesday, November 3rd, in the middle of the afternoon. So whenever we get the U.S. presidential election, I think that will be put us in a better position to maybe think of when hockey could come back uh, because I think you kind of need a leader of the free world who believes in science. So I think if Biden wins, it's going to massively help the sports landscape. And that includes the National Hockey League. Um, I mean, right now the border's not open. You have all this talk about a Canadian division. If you go to Manitoba, you have to quarantine for 14 days. So there's a lot going on. Um, I think it will happen. I would guess February. I think it's probably going to look like uh, the 94-95 season when they came back and the Devils won the Cup. It was a 48-game regular season. I'm assuming the border is going to be closed for a long time. So I think that Canadian division has some merit to it. Um, it'd be interesting. I mean, I don't know how you can't play in bubbles to start, maybe with very small crowds. But it also, I think it depends on how much money owners are willing to lose. It's not how much they're willing to, it's not how much can you make, but how much are you comfortable losing? Um, if I was an owner, I don't know if I'd be in a hurry to, to play a season where you have to pay players and just rely on TV revenue. In of the four major sports, I, I would say the NHL is the most gate-driven league. I mean, the NFL, you can have nobody there and still make money. So I get why they're going at it. But in the National Hockey League, um, I don't know. There's a lot to figure out. And so much is out of the control of Gary Bettman or out of the control of Donald Fear, the PA. It's, uh, I was so impressed with what they did 
when they jammed in the last season, the bubble was amazing. I count me among those who never thought it would happen. So hats off to the NHL. But I think if it happens, you'll see a, a start, hopefully, sometime in February. I know January is on high on the wish list, but there's so much going on in the world. And I'm sure the players, well, from what I hear, they don't want to be in bubbles again. But I don't know how you can't have at least a few bubbles. I, I mean, what do you do if you're the Winnipeg Jets? How do you play a home game? There's so many questions to be answered. Yeah, the original target date was December 1st. That's not happening. The new target date's January 1st. We're talking, as you mentioned, on November 3rd. I feel like that's a little ambitious, a little optimistic. Mm -hmm. And Bill Foley, the owner of the Golden Knights a couple weeks ago, let it slip that, oh, he's operating on on a February 1st basis. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing forward that start date. And eventually they're going to run out of, of, of room because you're coming yeah. up against potentially the Olympics. The Summer Olympics, yeah. So yeah. you're going to run out of runway, right? So it might be one of those things where they just have to do it, plug their nose, and not get everything they wish for. Or maybe they just say, let's not do it. But I would say uh, plug your nose and just go on with it is the far more likely scenario. I mean, everybody wants to have fans in the stands, but nobody wants to see this get worse. But hey, where do we sit on a vaccine, right? If a vaccine comes out, say, within three months, what does that do? So there's so, so many contingency plans probably being made right now. Like a lot, enough to confuse a guy like me, a ton, right? (laughs) There's a lot going on out there. Yeah, I'm I'm in that boat too. And isn't it crazy though how mid-March this whole thing shuts down, you know, the Rudy Gobert kind of sets the tone for the whole sports world. And I remember distinctly thinking, okay, we're going to like deal with this over a couple of weeks, you know, a month, yeah. a month or two. Here we are eight months later. And it almost seems like even though there's been progress and uh, there's been dips and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the numbers have gone up and down. I feel like we're not that far along eight months later sh- in terms of tackling this thing. I shudder to think we're 40% of the way there or halfway there. Uh, it's so it's so tough to tackle though when not everyone's in the same boat. And when politicians make help, and science uh, a political debate like I don't know what the debate is so there's this whole other part of the world that that's going on that's that's creeping into our little fantasy world of sports I mean in the summer it was great the weather was great so people were out uh, we had our all our sports we wanted now we're into you know on Sportsnet Central now we're not doing a lot of highlights because there's not a lot of games um, and it, I shudder to think too of 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 Maybe we're only halfway there, but maybe there's a vaccine around the corner. That's what I hope for. You know, you, you read so many news outlets, but I, I think with the COVID stuff for me, I think it's better just not to be, <laughs> I don't want to be ignorant, but you can only take so much. I mean, if you read about it every day, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah. That's what I was doing at first, way back yeah. in March into April, especially when things were like really locked down and you literally couldn't leave your house unless you're getting groceries. Yeah. Uh, since then though, since, I don't know, maybe midsummer, I've kind of tuned it out other than checking in here and there and going, okay, are we on the right track? Are we going sideways here? And a lot of it's regional too, right? Uh, if your region is doing all right, then you kind of continue with your daily life. If it's getting worse, then I guess you you crack down a little bit on yourself. It's It's, yeah, it's, it's so complicated. There's so much going on. There's so much you can't control. I'm a firm believer in control. You can control. All I can control now is myself and how I approach things. Hopefully my kids, my wife, she, she, she 
she does what she wants to do, but we're all philosophically aligned, obviously. But the problem is uh, we're in a world like this. You can't control what everybody does. And if uh, the, the good doctors say wear a face mask, I'll listen to the good doctors, but not everybody does. So how do you, how do you get out of this mess? And to me, the only, the only way we can all move forward and get back to normal is whenever a vaccine comes around. And it's so funny to think that, that sports, this toy department of life, the little fantasy world has just smoked right into reality. And now our reality is the same reality as everyone else, right? Sports was an escape. It's not an escape anymore because there's, there's no escape to go to. Yeah, it's been conflicting, right? Because you want the, the players, the families, anyone involved in the game to be safe. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to put your, like you said, your fantasy, your toy department ahead of other people's livelihoods and, and health. Yeah. So it's been this weird time where sports used to be what people went to after work. You know, they put in their, their eight hours at work. And they're looking forward to, you know, maybe watching you on the highlight show and then catching a preview show and then the game's on. It's like, oh, my night's set up. Sure. Now it's been thrown in the blender and the people who are involved in these professional sports leagues have kind of, I wouldn't say been brought down to our level. That's kind of a weird way to put it. Right. We're all sort of dealing with the same thing when usually they're the millionaires or the billionaires. Exactly. They live on a different sort of stratosphere. That's the thing about health right? It's the great equalizer. So no matter how rich the owner of the team is, his team can't play if we're in this, no matter how much money he has, with the exception of NCAA football, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. (laughs) I mean, student athletes, they really care about the student athletes, don't they? Of course. My God, if you weren't convinced that NCAA football is just a massive money generating opportunity that will step on and over anyone, well, you got to be convinced now. It's it's kind of gross, to be honest. Have you been keeping up with what's going on with the OHL and, and the political... The whole body checking thing? Yes. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, you need body checking in the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, it's a developmental league. It's junior hockey. you got to have body checking. Uh, last I checked, uh, incidental contact, you're just as close as the guy as you are with a huge body check. Lining up for a face-off, the center, two centers are face-to-face. The wingers are usually beside each other. That, to me, is just uh, people playing politics, trying to cover their butts by saying no body checking. And uh, fewer politicians that go on and talk about the Ontario Hockey League, I think probably the better off we are. But safety first. But I don't think eliminating body checking is going to do much. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all in for, hey, we're not going to do junior hockey in Ontario because it's not healthy. I'm fine. Like, if they Correct. can give us the science, if they can say this is too dangerous, hey, look at what's going on in Quebec with the QMJHL and how that's gone sideways, we're not going to take that risk. It's like, okay, fine. Like, you're the expert. I get that, yep. But if you come out and just say randomly, essentially, hey, body checking is is the real barrier that's stopping us right now. So so here's a question. If they can say no body checking in the Ontario Hockey League, can they go to the NHL and say, hey, if you guys play games this year in Toronto and Ottawa, Senators and Leafs aren't allowed body checking. Where where does it end, right? And last I heard, too, the OHL has teams in Michigan. They have teams in Pennsylvania, you know? It's just, it's strange to me. It's strange to me that that they can step on those toes. Yeah, it's a little arbitrary, especially when you consider a face-off, for example, yeah. would, would be a little riskier health-wise in terms of transmitting the virus. Or, you know, a scrum along the boards or a scrum right. between whistles. What, what if you got, what if you got uh, eight guys digging for the puck right in front of the goalie falling on each other? What's the difference between that and the body check? Yeah. That's, that's just 
I think politicians trying to draw a line in the sand, trying to look like they've done something. Uh, I could talk about politics all day, but I usually don't want to. So there you go. Well, let's talk. Let's let's go back to the NHL. Let's circle back and maybe put a, a, a rosier uh, angle on this whole thing. So one of the ideas being floated around behind the scenes and through various media leaks is the All-Canadian Division. You brought it yeah. up in, in passing. What are your thoughts on the concept of having these seven teams play only each other for at least the start of next season? Okay, so let's look beyond all the logistics, beyond the fact that you got to quarantine if you go to Manitoba, beyond the fact that who knows if it will happen. Let's just pretend it does happen. I think it'll be a blast. I mean, like It'd be like Hockey Night in Canada every night, right? Because yep. Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday, we crave our all-Canadian matchup. So it'd be like Hockey Night in Canada every night. I think it would be fantastic. It'd make for a lot of eyeballs. Uh, viewership would go up. I think interest would go way up. Uh, if you're a casual fan of the Calgary Flames and Calgary's playing Minnesota on a Tuesday night, are you that into it? Are you that invested? But if you're a casual fan of the Calgary Flames and they're playing Edmonton, I bet you're invested. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's a great idea. It's obviously not going to be permanent. But uh, if I'd much rather see an all-Canadian division than no hockey at all, uh, I think it would be fun for a year. Because remember, it is big business, but we all watch because it's fun. Most of us anyway. Uh, I got into hockey because it was fun, not because I enjoy math, not because I enjoy <laughs> the business side of sports. I got into hockey because it was fun. So if an all-Canadian division creates more fun for the fan, and it is all about the fan, uh, I think that's fantastic. And you're probably going to see some players really appreciate fans now too, because uh, I think players are realizing the fans play their salary. And, uh, you know, the more people that jam into the rink, escrow goes down, cap goes up. And this is a stark reminder of that. Yeah, there's a, a couple things unpacked there. One, I do think that the pandemic, the bubble playoffs, this idea of putting on an all-Canadian division has really revealed that maybe we need more personality in the NHL. Maybe we need more marketing behind the stars just because, you know, like, do you want this game to grow or do you not? And when, you know, dire times call, call for, or what is it? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Desperate measures. The tragically hip. Yeah. There you go. Pull their old gun down, put a bullet through his heart at the end by sundown. There you go. Wow. didn't expect that. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's revealed that a little bit and, and you bring it up in the context of, of this all Canadian division. And I remember last year when there was the Matthew Kachuk versus uh, drew Doughty thing. It was awesome. Uh, yeah. It, it was like, like you said, a Tuesday night, for example, at Calgary versus LA, how many eyeballs is that going to draw aside from, you know, the hardcore flames fans and the hardcore Kings fans? Not mm-hmm. many, but I was tuning in, even though uh, exactly. it's my job, maybe I'm a raw, I'm a bad example because it's my job, but my friends were tuning in, you know, people, that that oh. rarely care about a team that isn't theirs was yeah in. so so if you look at the final this year i mean i was invested in it we got rick bonus good nova scotia guy i was invested in it but i could see how a fan wasn't invested in it it wasn't the most entertaining hockey hockey is being dumbed down so bad now and i do blame the coaches for that and if i was a coach i'd coach the same way because you coach to win the easiest thing to coach is defense but when you insert offense and personality and little hatred uh then then you're going to have eyeballs. And I'm sorry to all the people who think it's, it's not nice that Matthew Kachuk and Drew Doughty don't get along. I'm sorry. That's why we watch. We watch for storyline. Do you want to watch a boxing match where two guys are going into the ring going, this is going to be a great athletic event? Now, hardcore people will watch that. 
Or do you want to see Larry Holmes jump off a car and kick Trevor Burbick in the face? That gets you psyched to watch the boxing match. So Dowdy Kachuk, that gets me psyched to watch a hockey game. I love pucks in deep, but let's get rid of that. Let's get, let's get, I want like Randy Macho Man Savage. You're going down, you know, vengeance is mine, say the Calgary Flames. Inject personality into the game. Give us something to root for. Make it so that we talk about it at the water cooler. And on a larger scale, um, just the, the, the physical play, it's not there anymore. The scraps, they aren't there anymore. I'm sorry, but that gets people talking. Um, I, I just the, the way the game's evolved, I don't like it, but I'd like to see more personality. And if you have an all-Canadian division and you got seven, seven teams, and let's say they play, I don't know, a 48-game schedule, you're going to be playing each other. I'm not good at math. Probably six, seven times each. That is going to create friction. That's going to create rivalries. That's going to create guys not liking each other. That's going to create storylines, and that's going to create viewership. And it's an interesting time for this to potentially happen because – there's an argument to be made that six of the seven Canadian teams are in the ballpark of They're each good, other in yeah. terms of talent. Like They're good. If you look at Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Montreal, we're excluding Ottawa from this discussion. Yeah. There's no clear-cut best team out of those six. There's not. Like if, uh, It's funny. I was kind of going over in my head. If you asked me who would win this division, I have no idea. I'm First off, I'm a horrible prognosticator. <laughs> But secondly, I honestly have no idea because there's a lot of really good teams. But, I mean, Calgary, they stole Vancouver's reason that they were so good. Jacob Markstrom. Ottawa's gotten better. Montreal, to me, has gotten better. Toronto's still a long way off because they won't address their biggest pressing need in that they have to play more than one-dimensional river hockey, which I love. And I love river hockey. I wish river hockey won. I wish every team was built like the Leafs and it was just go, go, go. I love that, but unfortunately, that's not the way it is. But, uh, yeah, there's some good Canadian teams, so I'm sure some would have to kind of fall to the wayside. But who knows? I mean, maybe if you have four divisions and, I don't know, maybe you have some sort of playing around at the end. There's all kinds of ideas that I'm sure the NHL could could toss around with the PA whenever they figure out when, if, and how they're going to pull this off. So let's say you're one of those – or you're in the Canadian division – which team scares you or teams, I should say, are there, are there a couple that you go, Oh, like if I'm playing them six or seven times a year, it's going to be a tough out. I don't know if anybody scares me because nobody leans on you anymore. Right. Nobody's, I don't see a team. Let me just think. I don't see a team in that Canadian division who's going to lean on you. I mean, I love Josh Anderson. I've been obsessed with him since he played with London. I love the way he plays, but he's only one guy. I love the way Wayne Simmons plays, but he's only one guy. So for me, if I look at Toronto, who's going to lean on you? I got Jake Muzzin and I got Wayne Simmons. So for most of the game, no one's leaning on you. I look at Montreal, Anderson. So I don't, I don't know if anyone's tough to play against. I think Calgary's tough to play against. Um, I think they're annoying to play against. I, I think that might be the way to go. And, and, and get Brady Kachuk in Ottawa, he's a pain in the butt. I love him. Like, I love Brady Kachuk. I love Matthew Kachuk. I love the way they play. The world needs more of those guys they need more Wayne Simmons type players more Josh Anderson so that skill guys can actually do their thing because I don't know if we've ever been in an era where more skill guys are injured than they are now and that's because guys can take runs at them and the game is all about creating room and uh people may not like it but big tough guys create room for skilled little guys instead of skilled little guys getting getting hurt I could go on a rant about that John but I won't <laughs> go ahead go ahead no what what about skill level or talent level 
like I said off the top with this discussion, there's those six teams. Do you have a favorite? Would you handicap, I don't know, the Winnipeg Jets or the Edmonton Oilers winning that division, this hypothetical division? Well, eventually one of these years, Edmonton's going to have to do it, right? Like eventually, for the love of all the Tully, they're going to have to do it at some point. Um, Toronto, uh, the two teams I would pay to watch are Toronto and Edmonton. Because I think if they just played river hockey, it'd be a blast. I just don't think the way Toronto's built, they're built to entertain you and built to put on an awesome regular season. They're just not built to do anything in the playoffs. And I'm not just saying that Columbus, because Columbus beat them. I said that before Columbus beat them. So Google me. It's out there. <laughs> Google me. The same, with, the same with Edmonton. I mean, they lost to Chicago. Chicago did nothing against Vegas. So there has to be an element that these, uh, that these teams address. So I don't know if they've addressed it just yet. Yeah, you do wonder with McDavid and Drysaddle to an extent. Yeah, when the clock starts ticking on their patience, because oh, well, we've seen McDavid get upset after losses. He's shown his frustration and yeah on numerous occasions. But there's got to be a tipping point there where he's in his prime now. Like this isn't this, this isn't yeah. rookie Con- Connor McDavid. He's got to make some noise here in terms of the team. He does he? It something. just goes to show you, like. When you look back at all these great teams we've had over the years, like Chicago, the three cups in six seasons or five seasons, whatever it was, 2010 to 2015, Pittsburgh with three cups. Um, you go back to the Oilers way back in the day. Uh, it's not just the top guy that does it. You need that supporting cast. No matter how good Connor McDavid is, he's not going to play more than 24 minutes a night. That means you're going to have half the game with him not on the ice. So somebody else is going to have to get it done. And that is such a challenge, I think, in the cap world for these GMs to find out who are those other parts I can get for cheap that will deliver. I mean, back in the day, if you were if you were Glenn Sather and you're running the Edmonton Owners, you just go, you pick up a Mark Napier or you pick up, you know, a, a Kurt Brackenberry that comes in and teaches these guys how to how to get her done before they became champs. Um, if you're the Pittsburgh Penguins in, in 91, 92, you just go and you pick up Brian Trotche for nothing. Like, I mean, that's the kind of guy that shows you how to win. So who can the Oilers pick up for next to nothing? Who can the Leafs pick up for next to nothing? Well, they got Joe Thornton, but, I mean, Joe's a warrior. He's going to teach those guys a lot, but is what are you going to get from him on the ice? You know, is he too slow to play center? It's just, it's it's such a challenge for these for these teams to, to get that supporting cast that, that puts ultimately puts any cup champion over. I get the feeling that you're not super thrilled with Kyle Dubas's off season. No, not at all. No. Um, uh, Joe Thornton's awesome, but I think he's already there in Jason Spezza. Um, TJ Brody, who they got from Calgary. He's not the kind of defenseman they need. They need a guy that's going to lean on you and going to punish you. That's, that's not who he is. Fantastic player. It's just not what they need. And I don't think that the Leafs have philosophically changed enough. I don't think they looked at that series against Columbus and went, okay, this is what we got to do. I think they're going back to the same playbook. That's just me, though. So. Yeah, there. I mean, there were some adjustments, some uh, additions, whether it's Zach Bogosian. I don't think he's going to play a ton. Maybe he's on mm-hmm. the third pair. Uh, you've mentioned Wayne Simmons. I did love Simmons. I, I absolutely love that move. So that's, to me, that is by far the best moves the Leafs did. Um, the thing is, like, I would like to see two or three of those guys on a team. Okay. But in defense of Kyle Dubas and every other GM in the league, there's only three or four of those guys in the league. Sure. Right? 
not a lot of guys play that way anymore. Um, so, and it's, and it's, it's tough to find those guys too, right? Because if you go to a junior game now, especially if the OHL happens now, no one hits anyway. <laughs> so where do you find those guys who play with grit and lean on you? I mean, at the top of my head, uh, Tom Wilson, Ryan Reeves, uh, Josh Anderson, Wayne Simmons, Cassian, that's five. Um, I you guess know, you could say Matt Kachuk. I don't know if Matt Kachuk would, would. Yeah, I'll put the two Kachuks yeah. in there. I'll put the two Kachuks in there. But that's just off the top of my head, right? I'm yeah. sure there's 20, 30 guys who play sure. that way. But that only sure. leaves for like one a team. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is like an organizational overhaul, right? Let's let's develop guys at the American League to play this way. But as you know, the, the Marlies play the same way as the Leafs. And I I love that. Man, I, I went to a game with my son before Christmas. It was the one against Carolina. I want to say it was 8-6 or 8-7. It was awesome. It was so entertaining. But it doesn't translate to playoffs. I, I hate saying that. I wish it did. I wish that style of play worked in the playoffs. And until the NHL either changes the way the game is officiated or or played that, that's just not going to that's not going to work in the playoffs which is a sin because i think that the team that's the high flying offensive team should be rewarded instead of the team that's the the wait 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 play the trap uh, get two shots a period play defense all games it's rewarded it's never made sense that the officiating does basically a 180 once the playoffs starts. Like it really doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense at all. Other no. than it's always been that way, and that's the way we're gonna gonna continue to do it, right? Yeah, I know, I know. Put playoffs, put the whistles away. I'm like, what? <laughs> make any sense? Yeah, I, I I'm a firm believer. Like, you should almost structure your team in two ways. You should structure your team in a way that it can have success in the regular season and success in the playoffs. So you, it's weird, but you wanna you want your team to be able to pull the Jekyll and Hyde thing, right? Okay, guys, we're in the playoffs, so now let's change it up a little. So let's adapt. So that's, I don't know how you do that. That's why I'm a talking head and not a GM, but that's that's kind of what I believe. Well, that's the Tampa Bay Lightning in a nutshell, is it not? Yeah, yeah. And, and they didn't do it on the first try. The first try was a first-round exit. So the second Correct. try, they made sure no stone was unturned, and it obviously paid off with uh, yeah. with the cup. And, I mean, there's also the the cliche of your best players need to be your best players at the, so true. the most important time of the year. and. There's no way you can argue that Tampa's yeah. best players weren't their best players. Headman to me is just incredible. Um, so you need that big D too, right? So uh, did the Leafs have that big D? I'd argue no. So there's a there's a still a lot to go on in in Toronto. So I was not convinced before they played Columbus, and I'm not convinced now. But I do count me as a big Wayne Simmons fan for sure. Okay. Well, based on this conversation and the books that you've produced. I'm going to throw it out there that you're, you're a hockey romantic. You, you like the old school, like, like not necessarily like your ways are old school, but I think you, there's a certain way of, of hockey that, that you're drawn to. Yep. Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm uh, I grew up on the game and that's the style of game. I like uh, some people call me old school. Some people call me a Neanderthal, a guy who has evolved. <laughs> that's true. Um, I like high flying hockey. And if a guy goes near your star, I like a guy either going up to him and say, are we going to play hockey or do you want to do something else? And if the guy does something else, well, then it's go time. I like that. I like uh, ways to open up room on the ice with a hit or uh, a glare. And man, I, uh, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a child of the eighties, man. I grew up when Gretzky was flying and Semenko was hammering guys. Right. And that, that's what made, uh, the owners are so special. They could 
they could beat you both ways. And yes, I'm a romantic when I look at the game. Uh, this book I wrote, One to Remember, it is written from the romantic uh, philosophy or angle that, wow, what's it like to score a goal in the NHL? Some of the guys in the book revealed, yeah, it's romantic. Other guys revealed it's not romantic at all. So everybody <laughs> had a different take. But for me, uh, a guy who still uh, uh, embraces his childhood, uh, who's been called immature and takes that as a compliment, um, I've always thought and I've always dreamt of scoring in the NHL. And, and uh, it turns out in some cases it is all it's cracked to be, up to be, and in other cases it's not. So, yeah, let's talk about one to remember stories from 39 members of the NHL's One Goal Club. You hinted at it there, but what inspired you to write about this topic? Yeah, um, just a dreamer, man. Uh, yeah. As long as I've played hockey, uh, or even before, playing road hockey, and, and it doesn't mean you're on the ice, right? Anyone out there, I'm sure, who's shot a tennis ball or one of those orange road hockey balls that can rip your kneecap apart. And not to mention hurt you in other areas. Uh, <laughs> they probably shot that ball into the net and thought, hey, I just scored in the, the NHL or game seven. I'm like that, man. I play with my kids and I still think that way. So I wrote One Night Only, which was about guys who played a single game. And I got to think, well, I wonder how many guys scored a single goal. You know, is, is that better than playing a single game? So turns out, give or take 400 guys at any given time. And got the list printed off by my buddy Steve Fallon at work, our stats guy. Went down the list, recognized some names, and did some research on some others, and started calling them up. And uh, it was fun. It was a blast. And I, I just wrote the book because I think it's an incredible accomplishment to score a goal in the greatest league in the world. And I wanted to know if this was at the top of the accomplishment for these guys uh, of their career for these guys. If it was a footnote, if it sprung them onto bigger, better things, or if that was like last call at the bar and it was as good as it got. And I was surprised, like going in, I thought, okay, obviously everyone's going to remember the goal and it's going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to them. And it wasn't. So that, that just tells you that the, the dream isn't always cracked up what it's always made up what it's supposed to be, but it's still a great, great thing. Just for a lot of the guys, it wasn't like the, the top of the mountain. Well, I'm sure too, one of your takeaways, and it was one of my takeaways from, from reading the book is, that everyone's path is different. Like you can go down rabbit holes on, on hockey DB and, and it leads to you to a lot of different stories and you unearth some of them here. And I want to get to a couple of the, the examples, but I'm curious, like how difficult was it to track some of these guys down and how willing or unwilling willing were some of them to participate in this project? Tracking them down wasn't all that bad. No. Um, hockey world's is small one, as you know, John. And if you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, You'll get a hold of the guy, and that's often what happened. The internet is a glorious thing, too. God bless the Google machine. Uh, led me to a lot of phone numbers and emails. If I did get a hold of anyone uh, on the phone, no one said no. Um, no one said no via email return. I'm not sure if anyone didn't return my emails. I left a couple of messages that were not returned, but when you're calling strange numbers, you don't actually know if that's the number that corresponds sure. with the person you're calling. But everyone I reached and spoke to was was happy to do it. Um, usually their answer was like, you're doing a book on what? Well, how can you do a whole <laughs> book on that? I, I don't know if I can have a, how long a conversation I can have about my one goal. And I said, well, let's just chat. Or, do you mind if I record it, put the recorder on? And uh, the conversations kind of led us everywhere. Um, the, the goal was a starting point for the conversation, which which is what I 
what I enjoy doing because um, I'm addicted to hockeydatabase.com. But when you look under goals and it says one under the G, that's all it tells you. It doesn't tell you everything else that goes into it. And I'm, I'm a story guy. So uh, I like to think the book's an easy read. It's not, you know, it's not uh, war and peace. It's not going to take you nine years to read it. You're not going to need a thesaurus for fancy words. It's just me and a guy having a, the type of conversation I'd like to think you'd have over a beer. Well, and there's so many books out there that are like, you got to read it front to back. Yeah. And like you said, it's kind of like, uh, sometimes it can be arduous. It can be, you know, words that you're like, you got to sit there and go, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> um, so you can hop around with your book, which is nice. It's yeah. refreshing. Totally. What's the, what's your favorite chapter? What's your favorite story, your favorite player that you happen to interview? Oh, that's a toughie. Um, to me, there's some, there's ones that blew my mind. Like the one on John English who played for the LA Kings. That blew my mind. Um, I'll have to let people pick it up to see what happened. But um, I, it's a story I never heard. And I've been around the game a while. I, I asked one of his old teammates about it. They're like, yeah, that happened. It was insane. Um, and this, when I was talking to Frank Beaton, who was a top guy in the minors in the 70s, best nickname ever, right? Never. Frank never beaten. Frank seldom beaten. Frank always beaten. Well, Frank gives me the sets the record straight on the nickname. But when I was talking to Frank and the way he talked about his goal, it was the way I think I would feel if I scored in the NHL. Interesting. So when I was listening to him, I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is the ending of the book. He's saying, I mean, I think this is exactly how I would feel if I scored a goal in the NHL. So if someone else wrote the book, maybe that wouldn't be the ending. But for me, that was my ending. So I really enjoyed Frank Beaton's story. I, the stories I enjoyed most were from guys like Frank Beaton, Dennis Bonby, Rob Skurlak, guys who never thought they'd make the NHL. I mean, Rob Skurlak was a tough guy in the Devils organization, and he was pumped to get a tracksuit in junior A, right? Free tracksuit. He's like, oh, my God, top of the mountain. But he grinds his way up to the NHL, scores for the Devils, and when he scores, right? As a fan, you go, okay, Skurlak, who's that? That's the tough guy called up from Albany. Okay, he got a goal. That's nice. That's his one goal. He played 47 seconds, whatever. But to the guys on that team, that meant so much because every guy on the Devils, as you know how Lou Lamarillo used to do it, used to – pretty much always have your little apprenticeship in Albany. So yep. pretty much every guy in the Devils knew who Rob Skurlak was, was mentored by Rob Skurlak at one time. And then Rob Skurlak comes up to the NHL to join their team. The beauty of hockey is the team atmosphere. And everybody, I think, was more excited for Rob than Rob was himself. That shows you about the unselfish side of the game. So stories like, like that I liked. And just, just guys who took different paths, who went through the Canadian university system and, you know, scoring a goal was just kind of a bonus and, and then there was guys who were first round picks you know probably thought they were going to score 500 who ended up with one and and how do they deal with that is it a disappointment where like where does how do you how do you deal with that you know you're supposed to be the next big thing and you get one goal so it was, it was kind of going in all these certain ways but i'd say that my favorite stories were the guys who never thought they'd make it and who actually made it because it almost makes you cherish it more you know oh for sure Elaine Nazardine had yeah. a really good story. He has something like 750 AHL games. Yeah. He's a stay-at-home defenseman. And he, I don't know how many games he ends up playing in the NHL, but it's like less than 50. Yeah. And he scores off a Sidney Crosby pass. Like, it's just. In his hometown. You know, yeah. It's on like, a buzzer beater. 
it's storybook, yeah. but also like serendipitous. Like there's a yeah. lot at work there. And you can tell through his quotes and the way he's talking to you and the way you're relaying it to the reader is like, this means so much to him. And he's gone on to have a nice coaching career. He's yeah. done a lot, but like, this is like something he can tell his grandkids. And like, there's, there's sort of like a real pride that, that right. seeps and, through the pages. And that is why I like doing this book too, because I think in a lot of instances, like I wanted to give these guys respect, right? I wanted these guys to be able to tell their story because everybody knows about the superstars, but like Elaine, I'm sure probably told that story to his family. He's probably never gone into that great detail about this goal. And I'm sure of the 39 guys in here, probably 35 of them have never really gone in depth on it. Right. They probably just scored after the game. Hey, what's it feel like to get your first goal? Hey man, it's a dream come true. That's that's your (laughs) quote. But Elaine was a guy, yeah, much like Skurlak. Every All the guys on the pens bench that night, uh, they did their time in, uh, in Wilkes-Barre. Like Colby Armstrong told me about it. When Nazardine scored, the boys went nuts. Like They went absolutely nuts. Not for them, but for Elaine. So that's, again, what's so special about the game. I also found it interesting how you could tell which guys were like pumped to talk to you and which guys were just kind of doing the interview to do the interview. And that's not, you know, any sort of criticism on your end. It's just like yeah. Chris Mason seemed to not care less about his goal. He's yeah. like, oh, yeah. I scored an NHL goal and it was yeah, weird. And it, I didn't really, you know, he's a goalie. So it was, it wasn't really his doing. It went off yeah. someone. And then there's Darren Hadar who you mentioned it. I think you really captured it where, He's basically like a play-by-play man when he's re- retelling it. He's like hitting yeah. on all the little details. And, yeah. And then like you find out something about him that I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know much about Hadar in general. Is that he plays uh, the end of his career with multiple sclerosis. Like, I know. I don't know. There's, there's some crazy things in your book. Crazy. You like, know. Da- and there's so many guys in the book too. Like Darren Hadar, for those of you who don't know him. Uh, AHL legend. Kind of guy that if you played in this area, era would be a top two-line guy in the National Hockey League. I have no doubt about that. Wrong era. He was just at the tail end of when the small guys started to come in. Uh, Mickey DuPont, defense with the Calgary Flames back in 2001. You know, 5'10", 180. Now, guys drafted in the first round that are, Quinn, Quinn, Quinn uses 170 pounds, for God's sakes. So there's so many guys captured in the wrong era. But Darren Hadar, wicked guy, yeah, played with MS at the end of his career, which is just nuts. His story's fabulous. Uh, I'm so happy to get to know Darren. I actually got the MC his golf tournament through all oh, this, right? We kind of yeah. still chat. So, like, doing these books, it's funny. Like, you, you almost form a bond with these guys while you talk to them because I don't know how many people are that interested in guys who scored one goal. But I am. So I think that the guys appreciated the interest. But, yeah, Chris Mason, he was just like, I don't know. <laughs> I made a save, and the D threw it down the ice, and it went into his own net. And same with Billy Smith, right? The one, the one thing I, I couldn't track down, and I played phone tag with Chris Osgood a lot. I just couldn't get it done. I didn't talk to a goalie who shot it all the way down. In the uh, net. And, if and if anyone's wondering, Marty Brodeur, no, scored more than one. Ron Hextall, no, scored more than one. So your your window of opportunity is limited with that. Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about the goalie angle till I actually got to the goalie section. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there are a fair yeah. amount of goalies that have scored just one goal because it's yeah. this, such this you know rare thing. So I'm going through your your books here. You got hockey card stories. You've done two of them. Yeah. True tales from your favorite players. And then you have one night only conversations with the NHL's one game wonders. 
Again, we come back to you know you being romantic about hockey. Oh. Were you like were you like the biggest hockey nerd as a kid in terms of like oh. collecting and you Dude. Know, information and stats? And... Well, I mean, next room over is full of cards and magazines and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I have an issue of Hockey Digest from 1988, and uh, the letters to the editor. There's a letter from me saying the NHL should expand <laughs> to Florida. Um, that's yeah, awesome. I, I collected, I devoured, I was curious. Um, I'm pre-internet, I'm pre-cable TV in a lot of way. My hockey cards were my window to the hockey world. Look, I mean, I'm sitting here in my bedroom and I got plastic sleeves for hockey cards right here. So they, that was my window. Like, I knew Guy Lafleur was born in Thurso, Quebec because it was on the back of his hockey card. Right. I knew Wayne was from Brantford, Ontario, because it was on the back of his hockey card. So that's where I got my information from. And I think that's why I'm a romantic about the game, too, because you only knew what was on the hockey card or was in Hockey Digest. There wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a ton of information on these guys. And you had your one game a week on Saturday night. I loved it, man. I still love it. And Saturday nights are still special to me. I got to hold the hockey night in Canada, Mike, a few times. For me, that was as good as playing. Um, so, yeah, I, I look at the game from, some would say, a naive point of view. I would say a 10-year-old point of view. What Ken Dryden wrote in the, in the game, you'll never see the game again the way you see it as a 10-year-old. And I strive to keep that alive. Because there's so many people, as you know, John, in our business that are jaded, uh, who go, go to a game and cover it like it's the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, or they're miserable to be there. If you see me at a rank, I'm smiling. And uh, I don't get to go to the rink that much anymore because I'm an anchor now, right? I'm, I'm on the desk all the time, but I love the game. And I know that bad things happen in all aspects of life. And I know that the guy in your hockey cart turns out he might not be a very good guy. But I also know, having been around this game for a long time, that 99% of the guys on your hockey cart, they are great guys. And when I call these guys up for this book, they don't know who I am. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they give me their time. They don't, you know, it's no problem. Um, people have asked me why, why I don't, do, why, why don't I do a baseball card stories? I got 40,000 baseball cards. I'm like, well, older baseball guys aren't necessarily as generous with their time as older hockey guys are. So I love the game and yep. True romantic, man. What, what was that movie? True romance. Uh, oh, uh, Christian Slater. Yeah. That, oh, that'd, yeah. Be me. that'd be me. Okay. It's interesting timing that we're talking. Cause, uh, I was off for a couple of weeks and part of my uh, duties or my, on my to-do list was to go through these old bins that ended up at oh, at my place because my best. parents were trying to get rid of it. I know where and, you're going. And I'm going through it and, you know, see a lot of hockey cards. A lot. I was like obsessed with memorabilia and like a lot of it kind of more sentimental, right? It'd be like a ticket sure. to a hockey game. Yep. Um, I end up throwing some of it out because it's like, I just, oh, just call it's me. Too, I'll take it. It's too much sentimental stuff. Yeah. Um, and like just trying to trim down the amount of boxes I have in the house. Sure. But um, it, it is something, right? And it, it takes you back because we're both professionally tied to sports. Like it's part yeah. of our job, which is yeah. fantastic. But it's also, you know, it's work sometimes, right? It's, it's right. kind of... Well, you, know, you know what's funny about that is, is, is sports cards are on a big boom right now. The biggest they've been since the 1990s. So for years, I kind of hid my hockey baseball card obsession away. But when I did hockey card stories, I had to be comfortable with admitting to my coworkers and viewers that I, adult male, <laughs> adult guy, collect hockey cards. Now everybody admits it. 
So it's become, I don't know, everyone talks about branding, right? Sure. So I guess if you were to brand me, I'd be the anchor, book writing, hockey card geek. I'm comfy with that. It's worked. For years, I tried to hide it. So, I mean, I, I embraced it. And when I embraced it, good things started to happen. Goes back to audio slave, man. To be yourself is all that you can do. And now it's funny. Uh, you get all kinds of reporters tweeting out or Instagramming out pictures of cards they had as a kid signed and stuff like that. And people are getting comfortable with it. And they should be because hockey and all sports are ultimately child's game. At the professional rank, they're played by adults for money, but also as an extension of their childhood, I'd like to think. And uh, yeah, so um, if you see me and you're like, that guy's a hockey card nerd. Absolutely. 100%. I actually had no idea that it, there was a new boom, a new boom. Oh, it's crazy. Look, yeah, it's nuts right now. Do you think that's like just kind of the cycle of life and fashion? You know how fashion, like they'll yeah. bring back the same kind of yeah. uh, brands and, and looks? Is it kind of like that where it's like it's now vintage? Or Yep, there's a whole lot of theories. Uh, pandemic, no one had anything to do. So they go rooting through their closets just like you did. And also, uh, guys our age now can afford that uh, Doug Gilmore rookie that they couldn't afford as a kid. They can afford that Wayne Gretzky rookie they couldn't afford as a kid. Everything old is new again, and nostalgia, I think, plays a, a big part of it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's booming again, man. It's it's wild. Now, that doesn't mean your cards from 1991 are worth any money. But yeah. some older <laughs> ones might be better. Because, as you know, uh, cards in 1991 were produced at an epic rate. The printers never turned off. So, if you got to... If you got a an unopened walk, wax box, a 92 OPG, I hate to break it to you, but it's only worth about five bucks. It's the ultimate supply and demand industry, right? Totally. totally. Like, I remember the, the is it Hornus Wagner? Yep. His, his, Wagner. His, yeah. His baseball card was, I remember growing up and it was like this whole thing. Like, I was, I was like mildly obsessed with it because I just didn't understand like why this one. Sure. And it was from, I'm pretty sure it came with cigarettes or something. Yeah. It was uh, like, yeah. It was inserted into tobacco products. He didn't want it in there, so they pulled his card. Fewer of them were produced. He was a Hall of Fame player for the Pittsburgh Pirates. The value goes up because of the short supply. Um, a Mike Trout just sold for $3.1 million. Wow. One copy of a Mike Trout card. A McDavid just went for 55000 something. A one of one. So it's crazy now. It's absolutely insane, and it's fun. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird for a guy who's been in it for a long time, and you see everybody jumping on. And you're kind of going, I told you, but at the same time, you're kind of going, get out of my way so I can get to the front of the table now. Now it's more crowded to get cards, right? Well, okay. On the way out here, what are your, some of your favorite cards that you own? What are some of your uh, your prized possessions? Sure. So I know it's cliche for a hockey guy to say, but a Gretzky rookie. And uh, I got a couple of Gretzky rookies, but the reason I love this one Gretzky rookie, which I was never sell. Uh, when, I were, when my brother and I were kids, I'm guessing... 11 and 13 uh in that age we wanted a Wayne Gretzky rookie desperately uh maybe 14 years old uh problem was we were kids and we couldn't afford one and I didn't want my mom to go pay you know 800 bucks for a card or something like that I'm sure she would have she was that generous my mom has been the biggest supporter of my card still is hmm. so mom came home one day with a box that she bought at an auction in a town called Westville about 15 minutes from where I live she got it for 10 bucks my brother and I opened them up. We're like, oh, blue, 7980, the blue cards, blue board, 7980. That's a Gretzky. Or we're like, we don't think there's going to be a Gretzky in here. So we're like, obviously, there's not going to be a Gretzky in here, right? Because who's going to throw away a Gretzky? Of course. Start rifling through them. 
halfway through, there it is. Like, oh my God. Gretzky rookie. Yes, yes, yes. I still remember we're jumping up and down. And then we just look at each other and we just chuck the mitts down and we started scrapping, right? Because we both want the Gretzky. Who's going to own it? Of course. Mom frantically screams, no, no, share it, share it. So we, we just kind of stop, you know, mid, 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 mid punch. And we're like, we can share it. So to this day, <laughs> that Wayne Gretzky rookie that sits a room over, it's not in the best shape, but it symbolizes to me the greatest player to ever play in the game. It symbolizes my brother, my mother, and just a love of collecting and a love of hockey. So brings it all together for me. That way. It's a good story too. It's like a cartoon. I can just picture in my head. I would love to see that animated. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a special one to me. And there's others. Um, there's others that don't have much value. Like a uh, Mike McPhee rookie I have means a lot to me. I love Mike McPhee. I love Stefan Riche, Shane Corson, uh, Lowell McDonald, who was a player from my neck of the woods back in the sixties and seventies. I got a rookie card of him that means a lot. But what I love about hockey cards is they all tell a story. So if you look at the card and you just toss it away, just look at it for that extra second and wonder, okay, what game is this guy in? What moment is captured there? And when you talk to Gretzky, I got Wayne, Wayne Gretzky. Mr. Gretzky was nice enough to talk to me for my second hockey card book. His first NHL card, the pictures from a game in Springfield, Massachusetts. They were playing the, the, the New England Whalers in the WHA and a snowstorm caved in the roof of the Hartford Civic Center and they had to play in Springfield. So the greatest player in the world, his first hockey card is from a dingy arena oh. in Springfield, Mass. Uh, probably the old probably the old Eddie Shore arena, right? Yeah. Eddie Shore ran his team. So there's a, there's a story with every card. And Wayne, Wayne actually had a good story. I'll tell you this one quick, John. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, he goes home in like 85 or 86, something like that in Brantford. And a buddy of his has a box of Wayne's rookies. He's like, what are you doing with that? He's like, I'm going to pay for my house with these. Like, what are you talking about? He said, sure enough, the guy sold all the rookies and bought a house for like 100 grand, right? And Wayne says, I wish I would have bought more of my, got more of my rookie cards. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody wishes they had more Wayne Gretzky rookies. Yeah. Well, you got three, you said. I think three. Yeah, three. three? At least three. Yeah. But the one, one is... Not it's funny. Anywhere. The one that's worth the least amount of money means the most to me. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how that how that all works mm -hmm. out. Sentimental really? value, like you said about oh. your old stuff, right? Yeah. Now you're making me think. God, I throw away some of the stuff that. Well, I what did you throw out? Was it all from 1990? Mostly, yeah. Like I don't Here. think. I, I mean, the the one card that I always had that I thought was valuable and I still have it. I didn't throw it out. Was a Grant Fuhrer rookie card. But yeah, I mean, it's thirty bucks. Yeah, that's as yeah. bad. That's as uh, high as I got on the the Beckett. Yeah. Pecking yeah, order. there you go. You know what you're talking about. Yeah, 30 <laughs> bucks. That's a good card. Hall of Famer. Yeah. Good golfer. Great goalie. McDonald's used to sell cards. My dad would always bring me home some yeah. some packets. I remember that, like him going out working and then coming back. Yeah. Like I just kind of didn't care. I'm like, oh, sweet. Right. I, the opening of the meat. cards is The is, other is thing that's been great fun. for card collecting was for years, everyone said it's inaccessible for kids. And another reason I think the boom is on. The Tim Hortons cards that started a few years ago, 99 cents a pack. Everybody can afford that. You get three cards. I think uh, hockey fans owe a big high five to Tim Hortons for doing that because they kind of brought cards back into the mainstream. So sure. I think uh, there's a number of reasons, but that, that'd that be one of them. Okay. Well, Ken, that you've been gracious with your time. It's been nice to chat with you here and uh, go down memory lane a little bit. Talk about yeah. some depressing topics like the <laughs> how COVID is, is <laughs> yeah, ravaging. We started the sports on low. We, we built up, didn't we? Yeah, we did. 
Yeah. All right. Thanks again for your time. And uh, anyone listening, uh, check out his book. It's, it's definitely worth the read. One to remember in stores now or on Amazon.ca. That's how you plug a book. Eh? You heard it here first. Thanks, John. Keep it locked for a brand new episode next week. Cheers.